Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9. And we are in the home stretch. We'll have uh, today and next week we'll finish up chapter 9. Depending on how next week goes in preparation, I may do a very, very brief overview of the significance of chapter 10, the table of nations. I'll have to just reserve commitment to that until I see where next week's passage actually takes us in terms of time and complexity. So we're looking now here at uh, the 30th message, Noah and his family and all the animals on board, after being on the ark for a little more than a year, have come down off of Mount Ararat. They've made their way down into the flatlands, if you will, into the new world. The world has been cleansed of its corruption. God has brought about a catastrophic universal flood to wipe out the corruption that man had brought into his perfect world. And as Noah and his family come down off of the mountain, the very first thing that they do at the tail end of chapter 8 is they worship. Noah builds an altar, the first altar that is mentioned in the Bible, and he sacrifices of every clean animal, of every clean bird, as a sign of his total devotion to God. This burnt offering in the Mosaic law in the ritual and ceremony of Israel's worship, this burnt offering was a sign of total commitment, of total devotion to the Lord. And after spending more than a year on the boat, looking over these animals, Noah, without any instruction recorded from God, now sacrifices of every clean animal and of every clean bird as an indication of his total commitment to God, of his thanks for the salvation that he enjoyed and recognizing God as creator. So in a previous section that we looked at, God expressed covenants that he has made. He expressed this covenant within himself internally. And Moses brings us into the mind and the heart of God at the tail end of verse, at the tail end of chapter eight. And here what we're going to see in chapter nine is the expression of that internal covenant that God has made with himself. So he makes this covenant in regards to the destruction of life on earth, the destruction of every living thing, and God's commitment to never repeat that action again. He makes a covenant that forgiveness will be the new beginning and not the destruction of all living things. A a very radical departure from what was a one-off experience to what God now ordains as a way for sinful mankind to start anew with Him. Not by wiping out all of mankind and starting again, but this new beginning through forgiveness. You and I are recipients of that goodness and of this covenant that God has made through our faith in Christ and the forgiveness that is brought to us through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. So as we move into chapter 9, we're going to see another very lengthy speech that is given by God. And we're going to see, first of all, in the first section of verses 1 through 7, the renewal of the promissory blessing that was initially given to Adam and Eve with the inauguration, uh, excuse me, with the inauguration of this post-flood world and the new laws that are going to be a part of that. And then secondly, in the second section, verses 8 through 17, the, no, the Noahic covenant 
and the sign that God is going to give as an indication of this covenant that he's making. This is a very lengthy section, verses 1 through 17. We'll look at these in two different pieces. And this is going to be God's covenant given to Noah. And we'll look at this in two different sections. Beginning in verse 1 all the way down to the bottom of verse 8. Or excuse me, verse 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man." As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So as we look at this new covenant, it reflects the fact that Noah is the new Adam. And beginning with the the flood narrative, we see a lot of the creation terminology introduced that gives indication that Noah is in fact the new Adam in the new world and the covenant that God makes with Noah mirrors the covenant, if you will, that God makes with Adam in the Garden of Edom. There's there's a several components that we're going to see here that also have its connection back in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, we see in letter A the blessing. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So just as God blessed and instructed Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply upon their creation in the garden, God does the same thing with Noah as he is now being inserted into the new world that God has made by cleansing it of the corruption that mankind brought into it. So the sinfulness of mankind and the subsequent destruction of all living things never negated God's plans or purposes for mankind, and that is found in the blessing and in the instruction of being fruitful and multiplying. After the sin of Adam and after the population exploded, so did man's sinfulness, and that brought about the destruction that we've just studied through the through the flood. Now, one significant difference that we can find here is that this blessing is given to Noah and his sons. It's not just to Noah, but it's also to the sons of Noah. At the time of this blessing, excuse me, at the time this blessing was giving, given to Adam and Eve in the garden, they did not yet have any children. So this blessing clearly has in mind the adult children of Noah who participated in the building of the ark and who also experienced salvation from the flood. Noah is a new Adam, and from his lineage will also come a blessed line, as was found in the line of Adam through the son Seth. So there is a restatement, a mirroring of the blessing and instruction given to Adam and Eve, also given to Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply. The sons of Noah will provide a linkage between the pre-flood world 
and the post-flood world, the sons become most prominent in chapter 10 in the table of nations who become the fathers of all of civilization that will descend from them. The patriarchs of future Israel, as well as the enemies of future Israel, will be found in the offspring of these three sons. That is the significance of chapter 10 and the table of nations. And so what Moses is doing through inspiration is he is re- he is retelling the covenant that God made with Adam. This covenant is being restated to Noah as there was a godly line that came from Adam and Seth, there was also a sinful line that came from Adam and Cain. These three sons of Noah are going to connect the new world to the old world. And from these three sons, there's going to be a line of blessing. And there is also going to be a line of cursed. It's very, very it's very interwoven into Israel's future through these three sons, and it connects back to the beginning of all time and the sin of Adam. It's an incredible study, very, very time-consuming. That's why I'm not sure how much of it we'll be able to bring out in a very, very brief overview, assuming I can even get in to chapter 10 as we finish chapter 9 here. So the patriarchs of future Israel as well as the enemies of Israel, are going to come from the three sons of Noah. And this is the connection between the pre-flood world and the post-flood world. So as we look again at this blessing that is given to to Noah through, through this covenant that God is making, the command to exercise dominion or to rule over the earth is not stated. It is implied, however, but there's a very clear difference in the ability to subdue the earth and rule over it pre-flood from what Noah is going to experience post-flood, and that is highlighted for us here in verse 2. It says, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps. Have you ever wondered why you can see some deer in your backyard or in a field or in a meadow near where you live and you lovingly and gently approach them and what do they do? They perk their ears up, they look at you and they go, danger, and they run. That's the fear that is now in every beast, every bird, everything that creeps. While man is to have dominion over the earth and is expected to subdue it, The sinfulness of mankind has affected this aspect of the original blessing. There's going to be a newly realized hostility in this post-flood world and having dominion over the animal world will be quite different because the animal kingdom is going to be terrified of man. It is assumed that this difference from the old world, excuse me, that this is different from the old world, or perhaps there was more harmony between man and animal. The animals freely came to Adam for him to name them. The animals freely came to Noah so that they could board upon the ark. 
This pre-flood harmony may have been a factor in how the animals so easily approached Adam and then so easily approached Noah, but that does not negate the likelihood that God did something within the animal kingdom to cause them to come, to allow them to be named, to allow them to board the ark without animals running away, without animals attacking Noah and his family, or animals attacking other animals. We don't know a lot of speculation. It isn't told of us, but very clearly the absence of the instruction to rule over and to subdue the earth is absent and it likely indicates this newfound hostility between the animal kingdom and man who is now going to find itself in this new world. So we see other obvious changes in the new world. This comes out again for us in verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So if you remember back in the Genesis account, the creation account rather, in the Garden of Eden, God provided the fruit of the trees as food, the vegetation of the land as food, and in the new world, animals are now on the menu. They were not specifically given to man as a provision for food. And here they are. That does not mean that man did not eat animals in the past. But there was never any freedom given. There was never any provision from God to man to eat of the animals. It is assumed that man has killed and eaten animals before the flood. But God never gave the provision of animals to do so. But here he clearly has. So the animal kingdom would now be terrified of man. Which would mean subduing them would be quite difficult. This fear of man that is now inbred in animals would make life safer for mankind because animals are not going to invade where man lives and perhaps kill them. It is, it is speculated that perhaps they did that before. We don't really know. But because of the fear they have for mankind, living in this new world will be safe for man. They are not going to be prey, so to speak. Man becomes a predator. And the animals are going to become prey. That does not mean that animals will never kill man because they actually do. We'll look at that briefly in just a moment. So if there was ever an assumed expectation of vegetarianism for mankind, that has been erased, that has been washed away. Animals are now given for man to eat. You'll also notice here that there is no distinction between the eating of clean and unclean animals. Now, the distinction of clean and unclean has been introduced to us, but there is not yet any dietary restrictions about what Noah and his family and subsequent generations can eat. It seems to be reserved for future Israel and the Mosaic covenant that would come, the Mosaic law, where there is a a distinction between the clean and the unclean. So as of now, mankind can eat of the vegetation, the fruit. They can also eat of all of the animals God has given it to them as a part of his blessing. Now, letter B in the outline is the restriction. We see this in verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. There's a lot of difference of opinion about what this actually means. But just as God did with Adam and Eve, there is a restriction for Adam and Eve. You can eat from any tree, You can eat from the fruit of any tree of the garden with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here there is also a restriction. You may not eat an animal 
with its blood. So in the Old Testament, the blood is representative of the life force. This is a connection between the necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. It is one thing giving up its life for the life of another. That sacrifice is the shed blood of an animal as an atonement for the sin of man, looking forward to the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the atonement for the sin of man. So in the Old Testament, the life, excuse me, the blood is the life force. And so this, this restriction that is placed here demonstrates the value of animal life while still allowing it to be food for man. Humans are not to eat animals the way animals eat other animals, with their blood still pumping through their bodies. Now, I I love nature. I love nature shows. I love learning about all that is a part of nature. It's very difficult to separate all of the evolution and all the other scientism that is placed upon that. But I'll tell you, one of the most gruesome things you can ever see is an animal killing and eating another animal, often when that animal is still alive. It's still trying to free itself. It's a gruesome picture. And it appears that this is potentially what God has in mind here. You're not to eat an animal with its life force still in play. Now, some speculate that this is a restriction against eating raw meat, while others argue that it means no blood at all in the meat. And that is why you cook that meat until it's totally gray and there's no, there's no moisture in it, there's no juice in it. <laughs> You're just kind of chewing on leather. A lot of speculation about what that means. Most think this, that this is a restriction of not eating animals while their blood is still pumping because even though God has given animals for food, we are still to value animal life and respect what God has provided for us. By forbidding the eating of blood, the regulation instills a respect for the sacredness of life and protects against wanton abuse. Adding meat to the human diet is not a license for savagery. And you can look back at periods of history where animals were killed just for their tongue or just for their skin or their fur. They were not killed Respectfully, they were not killed with any sense of value. They were just left to rot on the ground in which they fell. So that is not God's plan. So there is a blessing for us here. There is a restriction here. And just like in the Garden of Eden, there is also a warning. Letter C. So if there is value in the life of an animal, how much more so is there value in life of mankind that is created in the image of God. Now, verse 5 sets up the warning in verse 6, and it stresses the grave consequences for taking human life. Now, the challenge is, this is a bit of a clumsy sentence in English, and it's a little challenging to understand, but if you look at it in the Hebrew literary style, it makes a lot more sense. So there's a balance in what 
what uh, translators try to do and staying true to the text and making it easily to be understood without taking too many licenses. So we'll read this, and I'm going to restate this in a way that it would sound to the Hebrew mind. So verses 5 and 6. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in, for in the image of God, he made man. So God is taking what he has said about not eating animals with the blood in it, and he's now highlighting the supreme value in the life of man. So just as there is a warning with Adam and Eve, death for violating the restriction... There is also a warning for Noah, not related to the eating of man animals, but to the killing of man. So we see a, a mirror of the blessing, the restriction, the warning that is going to bring about a very unwanted consequence that is being mirrored here in this covenant that he made with Noah. So in the Hebrew, the word require actually means account or accounting. And when you look at the literal sentence structure in Hebrew, it sounds more like this. Now, this is not a literal reading of the Hebrew, but it's a way of reading this in a way that the Hebrew mind would understand it, and there is a difference between the two. So here's a restatement of what five and, of what verse 5 says as it sets up the consequence for the warning. And indeed, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. From the hand of every animal, I will demand an accounting. And from the hand of man, from the hand of each person, his brother, I will demand an accounting for human life. So the killing of a human demands an accounting from God. In this instance, God is the plaintiff, the one who makes the charge. God is the judge, the one who oversees the, the trial, if you will. He is the jury, the one that renders the verdict. And he is the executioner, the one who brings about the consequence. God demands an accounting from an animal that kills a human. Although that's not spelled out for us here in this Noahic Covenant and the forthcoming Mosaic law, an animal that kills a human is to be killed. That is how God demands an account. Similarly, in our world today, if you own a dog that has a propensity to attack a human, and if it bites another person, it's likely going to, put, going to be put down. If you go into areas where there's a lot of alligators or where there are a lot of beasts of the field, if it creeps into the village or if it creeps into the community and it kills somebody, they almost always kill that animal. That is how we demand and account for what that animal does. What God is saying, in the same way as man will demand and account from an animal for the shedding of a man's blood, so I am going to demand and account for man shedding the blood of another man. The phrase here, each person's brother, does not imply a literal brother, although that brings us back to Cain killing Abel. It's another way of saying a fellow human. It is a Hebrew idiom. And since we all come from God, 
and all come directly from the lineage of Noah, we are all related. We could say we are all kind of like brothers because we can trace our ancestry back to the sons of Noah. So this reference to brother is a way of saying fellow man. It's kind of a clumsy analogy, but in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about love your neighbor as yourself, the Pharisee said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus went into the telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that Good Samaritan took mercy and showed kindness and love towards a hated Samaritan in the same way that that hated Samaritan is a neighbor of a Jew, God is saying that your fellow man is kind of like your brother because you all come from the same place. The Mosaic Law goes to great lengths to demonstrate the value of human life and it governs how life is to be protected and how the shedding of life is to be punished. If you go through and read the Mosaic Covenant, there's nothing left unsaid. If you kill a stranger, if you kill by accident, etc., etc., it goes into excruciating detail. And sometimes we read that and we go, well, yeah, 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 that kind of really doesn't apply to me. But God is showing the value of human life, and God shows how the shedding of innocent blood is to be dealt with. So the root of the instructions of the Mosaic Law are found here. The instruction anticipates a very violent world. This new world, one that is still going to inhabit the presence and the power of sin, the one that was created out of the problem of sin in the pre-world, in the pre-flood world, it is also going to experience a very significant, very significant consequence as a result of sin. So as animals brutally kill and eat one another, so humans will brutally kill each other, and in some tribes eat one another. That is not God's design. God is telling us that animals have been given for food, but there is a very high value to the, to the, to the life of an animal. In a much greater way, there is incredible value in the life of a human. And those who shed the blood of humans, God demands an account. An account will be given. So this section concludes as it began, verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So a restatement of the blessing and the intended purpose for God. And as we move into the second section, it's somewhat lengthy, but it's going to go very, very quickly because it isn't that detailed. We see specifically the covenant that God makes with Noah. Letter D in the outline is the promise. We're going to read verses 8 all the way down through 11. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the first covenant in the Bible, and there's a couple of things that we're going to learn from this letter. I, this covenant is universal. It is given 
unto Noah, but it is perpetuated through the descendants of Noah. Its universality is evident because it encompasses not only every human being, both good and evil, but every living creature on the earth. This is what God is saying. I am making a covenant with you and with your descendants that does not end with the first generation that comes from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. This is passed on universally to all mankind and to every living creature. Never again will there be a flood that will extinguish all of life on the earth. Secondly, letter I-I, it is unilateral. This is very, very significant. It is unilateral in that God alone is the initiator of this covenant. Two times, in verse 8 and verse 11, he calls it my covenant. It It does not require any agreement by mankind or by the animals. It doesn't require any action by mankind or the animals. It does not require any approval by mankind or the animals. We don't even have to be aware of it. And by and large, the vast majority of humanity is unaware of this covenant that God has made with them to never again wipe them out through flood, even though we are very, very deserving of that. It's a unilateral covenant. God says, this is what I have decreed. I didn't ask your opinion. I didn't ask your approval. I'm not asking you to do anything. This is just the way it's going to be. Thirdly, triple I, it is unconditional. It is unconditional because there will never be another worldwide destruction by water, no matter what humanity does. Now, some people would read that and go, I'm off the hook, man. I can go do whatever I want to do, right? Well, that's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that at all. Grace is grace, but it's not cheap grace. It's not a license to sin, but it's simply a statement of the infinite mercy of God to not give mankind what it truly deserves. Now, fill in this blank. The covenant of God, excuse me, the covenant is God's self-motivated promise of an unconditional mercy throughout human history. That does not mean that God is not going to punish sin, that there isn't going to be a consequence for sin. It doesn't mean that God has turned a blind eye to the way we live our lives It just simply means that God has initiated within himself this unconditional covenant to not wipe out all of life on earth again, even though mankind is still incredibly sinful, thoroughly sinful, even from its youth. So this does not contradict discipline or consequence for sin. Neither does it, neither does it contradict the coming judgment at the end of human history. It just means that God is not going to do again what he did to the earth and all of mankind and animal kingdom through the flood. Now, as we sit here in 2023, three weeks away from 2024, believe it or not, as we look back at human history and the atrocities that have been committed by man... God certainly has reason 
to wipe us out again. But He didn't. And He doesn't because of this covenant that He's made here with Noah. As I began to think about that, and trying to identify from a certain period of history the number of years that mankind has, has, has enjoyed worldwide peace, very, very difficult to pin that down and say with any kind of accuracy the number of years there has actually been peace on earth. But I would be pretty certain to say it's not a lot. The vast majority of man's existence on this earth has been filled with violence. Wars externally, internally with civil and tribal wars. Man's history has been filled with violence. So I did a little bit of looking. I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. The 12 deadliest wars that we have on record. We can go back and estimate. But these are pretty accurate Estimations and proof of the amount of death that has taken place within the 12 most deadly wars. Some of these I've never heard of. Some of these you probably have never heard of either. The second Congo War, 1998 to 2003, 5.4 million people died. The Napoleonic Wars between 1803 and 1850, three and a half to five five million people died. The 30-year war fought between Catholics and Protestants in Central Europe between 1618 and 1648, eight million people died. The Chinese Civil War started in August of 1927, running through eight, through 1950. Eight million people died. The Russian Civil War, between 1917 and 1922, nine million people died, eight million of them civilians. The Dungan Revolt in 19th century China, 20 million people died. The Anlushan Rebellion in China between 755 and 763, 36 million people died. World War I, 18 million people died, 11 million of them civilian. The Taiping Rebellion of 1850 and between 1850 and 1864, 20 to 30 million people died. The Qing Dynasty conquest of the Ming Dynasty from 1618 to 1683, 25 million people died. The Second Sino-Japanese War between 1937 and 1945, 29 million people died. World War II, 70 million people, 50 million civilians died in that war. That does not account for all of the tribal wars that are going on even now in Africa. It doesn't talk about genocide that has taken place within civilization for thousands of years. The number of people who have died at the hands of other men, the number of people that have died at the hands of other people is in the billions And that does not account for the estimated 500,000 murders that account, that are accounted for worldwide, or the millions and millions of babies that have been aborted. The number of people that have died at the hands of other people is incalculable. And God says, I demand an accounting. To think about the atrocity that man has committed against man, 
sometimes even in the name of God, warrants God's unleashing of the springs of heaven to wipe us all out again. God in His divine prerogative, in His infinite justice, is capable, rightful in doing such a thing, but He doesn't, because of this covenant that is recorded for us, given to Noah. It's just amazing to think about. But that's the way it is. Letter E in our outline. The sign. The sign of the covenant. We're going to read verses 12 through the end of our section here, verse 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sign is simply the bow of God or a rainbow. The rainbow is not a new phenomenon But this now is God's way of communicating to the new world that the rainbow will be a reminder of the covenant that he has made with the earth. So as each generation looks at the sinfulness of humanity, it is reminded through the rainbow that God made a promise he would never again do what he once did at the flood. There is a common grace that God dispenses over the earth, and the rainbow is a reminder of that grace. Now, God is omniscient. He doesn't need to be reminded of His covenant. He knows very well all the things that He has promised to mankind. God knows very well all the things that He has done or ever will do before He ever does it. God doesn't need to be reminded. But He communicates this in such a way so as to remind mankind that just as we see the rainbow in the clouds and we are reminded of that covenant, Don't forget God knows that he has made that covenant with us. Now in our culture today, it is unfortunate, but it, I believe, very intentional that the LGBTQIA++ community has hijacked that symbol, this covenant sign of grace, and they flaunt it as a symbol of love when in fact they've made it a symbol of debauchery. They stand and they shake their fists aggressively at God, tempting Him and daring Him to do anything about this covenant that He has made. Well, you know, they're pretty naive. All mankind is pretty naive to think that God doesn't see it all, that God doesn't know it all, thinking that God might be lax in His promises, or that God really isn't going to do anything because after all, He hasn't done anything yet. God will demand an accounting. God is great. And God is greatly to be praised. 
it's very obvious that when we look at Genesis 3.17, the sin of Adam and Eve, the consequence of death, we didn't learn anything. When we look at what took place and what was pronounced in Genesis 6.5, that the thought of man is only evil continually and the coming flood that decorrupted the world that God had made, we didn't learn very much about that, did we? In the depth of our sin and depravity, God still loves, God still calls, God still saves, God still provides. And if you aren't assured of that, just look at the manger. Just look at the cross. The rainbow should remind us of the cross and the manger, of this grace of God that does not give to us what we deserve. Is God good? Is He worthy of our praise? Would you pray with me, please?